This is The Ghost Light, the weekly interview podcast that shines the spotlight on theater professionals that don't see it as often as the stars. At 21, I was a young performance artist and around I'd run with art school dudes and we would spend our days Greetings, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the 20th episode of The Ghost Light. This is a longer episode, so I want to make sure I get the stuff out of the way quickly. But before we start, I would just encourage you to check out TGL Pod on Twitter and Facebook. Go ahead and add me so you can stay up to date on anything that I am working on. And also, if you have a moment, if you could leave an Apple Podcasts review or just hit subscribe on whatever podcasting app you use, that would be greatly appreciated. Today's episode features Kathleen Calebro. I do a little bit of an introduction later in the episode, but long story short, she is an artistic director in Fort Worth, Texas, who started her own theater company with a few friends from college. She had kind of a late start in the theater, and her journey is very interesting, partly due to the fact that she's also a playwright. Her most recent play, Smart Pretty Funny, that I talk about in the show is actually on my bookshelf right now, and I have read it. And I think that she's an amazing artist, and I really hope that you guys take something out of this episode like I did. Without further ado, here's the episode. Now we don't talk all that much. We all grew up and all lost touch and never speak a mention of Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me. Today, I'm joined by Kathleen Culebro. Kathleen is the Artistic Director of the Amphibian Stage Productions Theater in Fort Worth. She's not only the Artistic Director, she's also a playwright. Her most recent show, Smart Pretty Funny, was produced at Denton Community Theater. So uh, multifaceted, and, and thank you for joining me today, Kathleen. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. You're one of the first people I thought of when I was putting together this show, so I'm glad I finally got you on. Oh, thanks. Yeah, of course. It's good to be thought of. <laughs> so <laughs> would you mind uh, just letting me and the people listening know how you got into the theater and where you're at today? Sure. It's. Uh, it took me a long time from when I first became obsessed with the theater at the age of 10 and then actually started making theater. Um, my, I grew up in Mexico City, and uh, one year my mom said she was going to take my sisters and me to New York for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And that was sounded really exciting to us. Had never been to New York before. And I loved staying in hotels. So when we checked into the hotel, I was ready to hunker down and turn on American television <laughs> And hopefully she would order us some room service or something. And she says, I'm going to go down and see if I can get any tickets to a show. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, no, 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 (laughs) no. I want to stay in this nice, fancy hotel room. I want to just watch TV Mm -hmm. and enjoy room service. So she gets tickets. She comes running upstairs. She's so excited. I got tickets. Unfortunately, it's front row seats, but we are getting to see Pippin. Oh, cool. I thought, oh, what a drag. (laughs) Well, of course, within five minutes of seeing this show and having all of these major, major Broadway stars who the names meant nothing to me at the time. Now I look back and I go, oh, my God, I was in the same room with these people. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I saw that very first production of Pippin, it must have been 1973 because I was 10 years old, Mm -hmm. which now tells you how old I am. (laughs) Um, But, uh, and then I became obsessed. Then I wanted my mother to buy tickets to every possible Broadway show. And then we started going every year to New York and my mom would take us to see shows. I remember seeing the first production, the first New York production of Amadeus. And um, the first production of Fosse and just all kinds of amazing things. Mm-hmm. 
And so then um, as I started to grow up, I wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And But my obsession with theater continued. Once I was old enough to make my own dis- decisions about where I was going to go on vacation, I would go to New York and see as many plays as I could. And I started writing plays secretly and secretly sending them off to competitions and to theater companies. And I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Had never taken a theater class except in high school, which I, I'm sure there are some outstanding high school theater courses in this day and age. But at that time, it was, you know, nothing. Um, it's certainly not mine. And, and in fact, I pretty much figured out that I wasn't supposed to be in theater, that I would never make it in theater when I was cast in high school mm-hmm. in a production of Lil Abner. And I was cast in a, as Dr. Finsdale. But when we started rehearsals, they told me to please not sing, but to <laughs> just mouth the word so that everybody else could sing. And that is one of the more demoralizing moments of my yeah. life. Wow. <laughs> um, and uh, so that happened and I thought, oh, okay, so I guess theater's not for me because I'm not a performer. Mm-hmm. And... uh I had a really limited vision of what theater people could be like. I thought you were a theater kid. If you came out of the womb singing and dancing and uh, very outgoing, which I was the opposite of outgoing. I was as shy as shy can be. Mm -hmm. So it never occurred to me that I could major in theater in college. Uh, So I majored in First, I started majoring in English, and then I decided to major in French and Spanish literature um, because I thought, well, we're going to business and I'll be a translator or something. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, but all this time I was writing plays secretly. And um, so fast forward to when I already have a child. And I moved to Fort Worth, and this was 1993, Mm -hmm. and uh, having a bit of a hard time fitting in with all these people who had clearly grown up in Fort Worth and all knew each other, and I was shy. My ex-husband is a doctor, and, you know, I have a small child, and, um, and so I was talking to my sister, and she said, you know, TCU is right around the corner. Why don't you go take some theater classes? And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. I cannot do that. <laughs> um, and she said, just do it. What's what's it going to hurt? And and you're going to meet some people. And, and uh, so I did. I went in and um, I thought I could just sign up for classes. And then it turned out I had to go have a meeting with my advisor. They gave me this thing called an advisor, which was a whole new concept for me, mm-hmm. having been out of school for a while. And uh, they assigned me the chairman of the department. I thought, oh, no, <laughs> he's going to laugh me out of there. He's going to say, what the heck are you doing here? Why are you um, why are you trying to take theater classes at the age of 32? And um, or however, I was in my early 30s. I don't remember exactly what age I was. <laughs> and fine. I walked in there and the, the chairman... His name um, is For- Forrest Newland, the man who was chair at the time. He's passed away since. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't realize is that when you're in your 60s, 30 sounds like 12. <laughs> and so he didn't bat an eyelash. He just said, sit down, let's advise you. Mm-hmm. And you seem like a perfectly lovely person. Let's get you into some classes. Um, and that's what happened. And from there forward, I was drawn into every class by the teachers and the students Mm -hmm. as just one of the guys, you know, one of the students. And um, so my first class was a theater survey class with a a teacher named George Brown. And uh, he, um, he, it was kind of like a general theater history class in a, in a giant, giant room. But then when I finally started to be able to take more smaller studio classes, 
is when I got to know people right away. I learned that I had a skill for stage makeup mm-hmm. and um, had no idea before TCU that I had a skill for that. And so my first, you know, you went through the program at TCU. You have to do all of these um, the these crews. That's what they call it. They, yeah. You have to be on crew for different things. So my very first crew that they put me on was uh, set crew. Ah. And, and <laughs> so first day of tech, I, and I help in different ways. I learned what Dutchman is. And if you don't know what Dutchman is, good, because you never have to do it again. Um <laughs> <laughs> but I, I learned how to do that. I babysat the technical director's children a couple times mm. during wh- when I was supposed to be working. It's a unique I was position. terrible at building things. And um, <laughs> then come uh, uh, technical rehearsals. And my job was the, the show was communicating doors. Mm-hmm. And that is an Alan Eichburn show in which everything goes backwards and forwards, forwards in time. Every time you go through this door, you go forward or backward in time. And mm-hmm. so the door would rotate to indicate that time was changing. So this uh, very stinky, but very sweet six foot five heavy set guy and I were in charge of holding up this door to make sure it didn't fall over. And um, there we stood with our little arms up, you know, chatting away. And one of my classmates in my makeup class had somebody send for me because with all of this going back and forth in time, he had to age Mm -hmm. and then become young and age and become young. And he would have about four minutes to do it. And because he, he and I kind of got to know each other and he saw I had a skill for stage makeup, he asked, if I could come help him. So that's how I got off of the <laughs> set crew and into the dressing room where then I got to really meet um, a lot of people. You know how it is. You spend a lot of time in that dressing room yeah, yeah. chatting with people before, during, and after the show. Um, and there were four different actors who had to have their makeup aged and then back to youth and then back to age. And, wow. and I got to do that. And it was so exciting. It was the most fun I've had in a long time. Mm-hmm. So then, um, so then I really felt like I fit in, and I started trying things. And people were asking me to help with this, and we would do offstage projects. And you know, as happens in any situation, you become very close with some of your classmates, despite the fact that you know you have a child and they don't. You know, they're barely old enough to drink, but. <laughs> This probably says something about my maturity level, um, but uh, anyway, so I got to know some of my classmates really well, and um, when they graduated from TCU, one of them, this is Carmen La Civita. Yeah, I don't know if you know him, Matt, but I know um, Carmen. Yeah, he, yeah, so he. Uh, suggested that we produce a show. And I thought, you know, I've read this play on the page. I don't like it, but I think we could do something really cool with it. And it was Burn This by Lanford Wilson. Mm-hmm. And we did it. Um, I I basically used all my furniture from my own house to create a very cool set. My sister <laughs> had some fabric panels that she lent me that I created sort of an upstage area where that we could silhouette. And um, we were really proud of this production, but I have to go back um, and say I missed a major part, and that is that Forrest Newland, the man who welcomed me in as if I was just like everyone else, actually allowed us to use the theater TCU spaces, handed over the keys with no supervision, no contract, no nothing. That's trust. And said, <laughs> have fun. Yeah. I, and I do think at that moment, um, he said, you know, you're a grown up and I know I can trust you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that in that case, my age really helped me. And I, of course, I earned that trust, I believe. Um, I had taught, I had student taught a couple of makeup classes for him. And, you know, so I didn't come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. But it also 
certainly isn't something he had to do. And it's something that was such a huge gift. It would have been so easy for him to play it safe and say, no, I'm sorry. I can't do that. If I do it for you, I have to do it for everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, all those answers. What if something breaks? Oh, no, we had access to everything. All of the sound equipment, all of the lighting equipment, any of the theaters we wanted to use. And so, you know, where most people starting out and producing a play, they are renting a basement space and cobbling together a set and cobbling together some like lighting instruments that they can borrow. We had it all. So the things that we had learned, we could actually show off and we actually seemed more talented than we really were. More reputable, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, so of course, um, it all felt very easy to us. Um, and because it felt so easy to us, we, we became a little bit naive and thought, well, that was easy. Let's go to New York and produce there too, mm-hmm. which we did the second year and learned all the realities <laughs> of producing theater when you aren't handed beautiful stage. Um, you know, the cost of renting a space in New York. And yeah, I've seen some of those shows. The regulations here, so. <laughs> and yeah, it's just really hard. Um, but but it was something we wanted to do. I think mostly some of, because some of our founders had their sights on living and working in New York. They wanted that on their resume. So mm-hmm. So we did do some things in New York, but quickly learned that that was really hard and that New York does not need more theater companies. (laughs) So we focused on TCU and, uh, and on, I mean, on Fort Worth and had eight summers at TCU of just playing and learning and just, it's just such a gift. I can't stress enough what a gift that was. Mm I don't think we would be here today if we hadn't had that opportunity and so much freedom to do that. Um, One year toward the end, we did cover the entire Hayes Theater stage with sand. And I think (laughs) by then, um, Harry Parker was... I think by then we were pushing our luck. (laughs) Um, But he still let us stay another another year yeah um but then when trinity shakespeare festival started up Mm -hmm. they needed their spaces in the summer and that's when we and we were feeling ready to expand our season yeah so we went off to the community arts center but before we did that i sort of have to jump around because no no it's obviously not a completely linear story Mm -hmm. when we were doing shows in the summer and fundraising and all those things People would say, that was great, that was great, what are you doing next? And we'd say, well, nothing till next summer, so we don't really know what it's going to be. And so we wanted a way to have a presence throughout the year, and we knew we couldn't do that at TCU. We knew we didn't want to do it in some terrible space that, you know, that wasn't going to accommodate us. We couldn't afford much. So what we decided to do was to do staged readings at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. And that was a stroke of genius on uh, whoever it was that suggested it to me. I know it wasn't me who thought of it, but um, it was an opportunity then for us to do things, again, in this beautiful setting that made us seem so much cooler than we were, but also um, allowed us to do some work when there's a lot less at stake when you're only going to do one night of a staged reading Mm -hmm. and you're not spending all this money on equity contracts and um, on sets and costumes. So you can do some riskier material. You can do stuff that's a little darker that maybe you're not going to be able to sell four weekends of, but um, it kind of started becoming part of what we were. And, uh, people at first resisted it and said, what is this stage reading thing? It sounds terrible. And then our audiences started to grow and really enjoy 
using their imagination. They had no set, no costumes, mm-hmm. very minimal blocking. And they enjoyed that focus on the talent of the actor and the talent of the script, the, the beauty of the words of the script. And um, so we did that for a while and we moved into the community arts center for our main stage production, which we could now do at that point, we could come uh, increase to three a year. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was a great learning period. You know, you can't, if, if you walk at some point, you still have to go backwards and learn how to crawl. Well, we had TCU, so we walked right away. But then going into the community arts center, while it's a very nice space, mm-hmm. it's not at the level of TCU. So we had to sort of go backwards and learn how to crawl on a few things. Mm-hmm. And it was a really important time for us. We had to learn how to raise enough money to pay rent every month for our offices and and pay for the space um, to perform and, you know, all those things like we couldn't load in or, or, or build the entire set in the space like we could at TCU mm-hmm. because they were going to charge us by day for, <laughs> for in the theater, you know, so we had to save money. So we had to build sets in uh, in our garages and then load them in at the very last moment and, you know, kind of like what we'd had to do in New York. Mm-hmm. Lots of logistics. Yeah, lots of logistics. So, you know, we got our education eventually. Yeah. Um, but experience. we knew that the, yeah, the, the, the situation at the Community Arts Center started becoming difficult for us because there was a church group that was very loud and disruptive mm-hmm. during our Sunday performances. There were weddings with DJs and live bands and the <laughs> galleries next to us. And, and, uh, and then um, the parking situation became difficult. So we started to realize that we needed our own space. We either needed to reinvent that space and get the people who run that space on board with us to let us really dig in there and, and carve out a space for ourselves or buy our own theater. And, um, and I kept telling my board, you've got to help me. You've got to help me find a space. You've got to help me prepare for when that perfect space comes around mm-hmm. because I don't know anything about real estate. So we looked for five years and um, we kept, everybody kept telling us that we should pioneer in a place, in an area that wasn't yet developed, but that was on, in, in line to become developed. Mm-hmm. And that was the South Main area was, was, this was back in the day when going east of Hemp Hill on Magnolia seemed like a dangerous move. And um, so one day, one board member, my board chair, sent me an email and he's always very quiet. He doesn't say anything until he has something really worthwhile to say. Mm-hmm. So I knew that he meant business because he wasn't the type to send me 30 leads like a lot of people do on things. He sent me this PDF about this building that was for sale and... um and it was a kind of a <laughs> a questionable nightclub. <laughs> and he said, you can't afford the whole thing. You'll have to split it with another company, but let's, let's do this. Mm-hmm. And back then this was, this was a much scarier street now. And, and Matt, you need to come back and see how beautiful the street is now I, because it's I know. I think completely I was redone. There. I was living there when it was a yeah. little bit scarier. So um, I would love to yeah. see it now. Yeah, there's public art on the street. It's wow. just really fantastic. And um, real estate has gone way up. Our building, <laughs> can only imagine. before improvements, is, is worth at least double what we bought it for. Wow. And that's just because uh, when we did that because our board helped us through it. I could never have done this alone. I could never have identified this alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had the good sense a few years prior to that to marry an architect (laughs) and um he redesigned the sketchy building (laughs) and made it a very attractive theater for us on a dime Mm 
he had a lot of contacts and is probably still paying back for favors on things like beautiful granite was donated to us. Carpeting mm-hmm. was donated to us, uh, bathroom fixtures, all kinds of things. And um, so that's where we are today. And once we got our own space, we could, now we really felt like, okay, we're really a theater company now, you know, cause we're in our 18th season. Mm-hmm. But I say that with an asterisk a little bit because, you know, those first few seasons were just one show a year and we were really figuring things out. And so I think we behave more like um, probably a 10 year old company. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been in this, in this particular space that we bought since the fall of 2012. So we're now celebrating our five year anniversary here. Mm-hmm. And, um, our staff is growing, just uh, just hired a managing director, which is a first for us to have a full-time managing director and a full-time development manager, a full-time marketing manager. So we're, you know, we're, we're finally really filling out. Mm-hmm. And, um, and now our staged readings are here at in our own building because why go elsewhere when we have our own real estate? Yeah. But now the, it's about developing new work. So we receive submissions from playwrights and from directors and we, we give them a week residency and um, then put, put up the staged readings at the end of that residency. Mm-hmm. And then we invite um, artistic directors from around the country and offer them a small stipend to offset their travel costs to come and see these developmental readings. And we'll do the same thing if we ever do a world premiere or even a Los Leonardo, which is running right now is not really a world premiere. It premiered with a different title in, uh, at the Arden, Mm -hmm. but we've spent three years working with the playwright to really develop it and get it readier. And uh, so now we have a full production and I feel like it's ready. And so I think I want to do everything in my power to give this play a life. That's really my biggest mission. Whenever we do a staged reading or we do a world premiere is let this not be the, the end of this story's life. Let it have lots more productions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's so obvious. that brings us to today. Yeah, I was just gonna say it's <laughs> obvious that you've you've built something pretty incredible. I mean, it's one of the I don't know how many equity theaters in Fort Worth, four or five. There are four. Four. Mm-hmm. Okay. So mm-hmm. you know you're in a minority, but you're certainly one of the bigger presences in Fort Worth. But the mission of Amphibian Stage Productions is that you want to produce innovative and engaging theater that inspires new ideas, opens new doors, and increases our understanding of the vast world around us. And you've spoken to that a little bit, but how do you, as an artistic director, find work that fits that mold? Um, It's not hard to find that work, I'll tell you. Mm -hmm. The world is so full of fantastic place. What I will say is that the limitations are great on one budget, you know, what our budget will sustain. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what audiences will tolerate. Um, I do have to say that while we have cultivated a really strong, passionate following of patrons who will follow us to the ends of the earth, they never know what the heck those titles are, but they're <laughs> signed up for for a uh, for a season subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as like massive audiences other people that just want comedies, you know, and we want to ask the deeper questions. And so finding that right show that isn't too dark, isn't too sexual, isn't, doesn't have too many bad words, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll do some of those, but we go into it knowing, okay, Fort Worth, 
Um, <laughs> yeah, it's fairly conservative in Fort Worth, if, if you yeah, don't know yeah, what, it is. about Fort Worth. But in, yeah, but in talking to artistic directors around the country, outside of New York, outside of probably L.A., San Francisco, those are we're all complaining about the same thing. Everybody is battling that need for light comedies and then the, uh, you know the 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 fact that people are are easily offended by content. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't I don't let it completely dictate everything, but I also we don't exist for ourselves. We exist for our community, and that's how how I have to approach it. Mm-hmm. And am I creating something for my community? Who is my community? Um, it's not every single last person in Fort Worth, Texas, because some people will never want to see theater, regardless of what you present. Um, but so that's that's one of the you know one of the challenges, um, aside from the same old challenge everyone else has which is budgetary constraints um our our theater is um it's a flexible space and we tend to do kind of massive sets so we can only fit about 90 feet in there by the time we put our massive sets in there mm-hmm. so um you know so our gross potential revenue isn't going to be what it is at casa manana yeah. And we have to take all of those things into consideration. And 32 people dancing the can-can are not going to fit in our <laughs> dressing room or our stage. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's all those kinds of things. But as far there is no shortage of beautiful, beautiful plays that, that do open our understanding of the world around us. Um, my, you know, my regret is we can't do more of them. And I think uh, sometimes at least we can do the staged readings because since there are only two performances, that core group of audience members, they will come, they will fill up the house mm-hmm. and I don't have to worry about 14 other performances yeah. to fill up, you know? And you guys do walk that line very well because you were always the theater that I thought of as the ones that did the more engaging, thought-provoking work, which is why I was always wanting to be around you guys. But one that I know is very special to you, and, and this is a very long title, but I, want, I do want to say the whole thing. The True History mm-hmm. of the Tragic Life and Triumphant Death of Julia Pastrana, the Ugliest Woman in the World. That was a show that kind of rocked my world when I was in college, and I know that it's like mm-hmm. I said, very special to you. So can you talk about that show and how you found it and what its journey was in Amphibian? Oh, absolutely. So my mother and I try to go to London every year. We don't make it every year, but we try. Mm-hmm. And we try to see everything we can, kind of like we used to do when we went to New York from Mexico. And there was this play that I saw in Time Out London advertising. It said it was sold out, but it was fantastic. It had this weird title, which you already said, so I won't say it again. <laughs> and so um, my my mom and I went out there and I thought, oh, gosh, what what did I get myself into? It was a, an hour train ride and then 10 minute walk. And it turned out to be this funky community center, maybe. <laughs> and uh, we stood in line and waited for for to see if we could get in. And sure enough, we were able to get tickets. So we walk into this room and there's a show drape that has the title of it. And it sort of has those old circus, that old circus typography and imagery. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of folding chairs. And I thought, what is happening here? I knew it was in the dark. Mm-hmm. I was really afraid somebody was going to touch me. <laughs> um, I was afraid I was going to get, you know, something weird was going to happen. I had no idea really what was going to happen. So the lights go out and this show is performed. And I can feel the actors move around me. I can smell the things that they're talking about. Um I can feel their costumes move past me. I can, the sound is so vivid that just, I felt like I saw this play 
that was in pitch black. Mm-hmm. So the lights come up, the show drape has come down, and they now have all of the the, you know, the 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 actors take a bow, and they have all of the bits of things that they've used to make all of the foley sound, mm-hmm. which I thought was really cool. And my mom and I looked at each other and thought, "Oh, Obsidian has to do this. We can do even better." So, so uh, we get the rights to it, and we produced it both in. New York and in Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. And um, the playwright came to Fort Worth to see it. He was not happy (laughs) that we actually had the first four minutes in light. Mm. And then when the curtain is drawn, you, uh, the lights went out so that you never saw the ugliest woman in the world. So Mm. anyway, we're, we're now Facebook friends. So all is well. (laughs) Um, But anyway, at that production, we we really felt like it was a very special, moving, important story, and we and the end of the story is that this woman who has been sold into a freak show. I mean, you could do an entire podcast, and I hope you do because uh, my sister is now doing a show on her. Mm. So there's some fodder for something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, after. After she died, her remains continued to be shown. Her embalmed remains continued to be shown. She died in 1860. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until 1970 that they stopped showing her remains. And she was stored in in a research hospital in Oslo and kind of stuck in a closet. Supposedly for research reasons, although there's no evidence that research was ever done on her. So my sister, I asked her, she's an artist, um, and I asked her to design costumes for this piece that nobody would ever see. But, I, you know, we, our, our vision was, uh, you know, you could see the actors the first four minutes. She did these very, very cool costumes. And um, she, uh, she became obsessed with this story. She said, this, this woman needs to have... Remains. She needs to have a Catholic burial. Like she was raised Catholic, she was Christian. She deserves a burial. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Oh yeah, good idea." So we circulated a a petition among our audiences on a you know yellow notepad. I sent it off to the the Norwegian embassy in London. I mean, in in New York, and told them, "Gosh darn it, you better." bury her in Mexico. And uh, of course, I never heard from them again. Mm -hmm. But my sister took it upon herself to make this happen and spent the next 10 years of her own time and her own money doing all of the negotiations between Mexico and Norway and getting documentation from human rights activists, from ethicists, um, trying to track down the family because with, without the family, it was much harder. She mm-hmm. wasn't able to track down the family. So, so all of these, she had to get government entities involved and all of that. But 10 years later, 10 years after we produced that show, my sister was able to go with a delegation from Mexico to Oslo to collect her remains, travel with her to Sinaloa, Mexico, which is where she's believed to be from. Mm -hmm. And they had a celebration there and she's buried. Wow. Um, Yeah. So it's, it's a big story, but it's, it's, it's bigger than just about Julia, you know, it's about, ownership and about beauty and it's about so so the story continues in that my sister is doing a one woman show that she's developing here at Amphibian in 2018 that will be part lecture, part performance piece, mm-hmm. part kind of cabaret or something um, that uh, about that journey. It'll be the real story because um, Sean Prendergast 
made some assumptions in order to write this this dramatic play. Mm-hmm. But my sister lays out all of the facts that she that she knows to be true and her extensive history, but also talks about you know the the worth of people and how we value people. And there's so many interesting details to this woman's life and how accomplished she was. She was, she could speak several languages, sing in an operatic style. She could dance. Um, but yet she made her fortune because she was the ugliest woman in the world. Yeah. That's uh, very interesting. You'll have to put me in touch with your sister for sure. I will. I will. Um, yeah, so we produced it again in 2013, which I think is when you saw it, right? Yeah, that's when I saw it. Yeah. Oh, no, maybe it was it was 2012, fall of 2012. And I'll tell you, one reason we brought it back was because we knew she was about to be uh, re- repatriated and buried. But another was because we had just moved into our building and we had no lighting equipment and no sound equipment. <laughs> How convenient. <Yeah. laughs> so it was like, uh, what can we do? Oh, I know. <laughs> and that's what we did. Yeah. Well, the show is certainly amazing without sound equipment or lighting. So I had a great time. Um, but I don't, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do have one more question um, about being both a playwright and an AD for a theater. I guess how do you know when a show is done or how do you know when you can do it? Cause I think you've done maybe one or two shows at Amphibian that are yours. So what does that process look like? Uh-huh. Oh gosh. For my work personally. Yeah. Um, I agonize over it for years <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, as, as an artistic director who only until recently had a full staff. So for a while there, it was me and a couple part-timers doing everything. Um, I've never really had as much time to write as I've wanted to, but yeah, I work on it for years and I show it to directors and then, um, finally sort of get up the, well, I'll put it on the season and then I'll chicken out and I'll take it off season (laughs) and, uh, and then I'll put it back in and then there's that deadline. So it better be ready. Mm -hmm. And, um, I love the collaborative process. I love, I, I've never wanted, had any desire to direct my own plays. I love what I learned from directors and I've had very good, uh, very good experiences with some directors developing new work. I had one horrific experience in New York mm. um, with a director who was actually mentioned by name in the Dramatist Guild magazine recently um for his unethical behavior so i felt a little vindicated <laughs> Some vindication, but, um, yeah. yeah but um yeah directors are wonderful people because they help you make your play so much better if they're good at what they do and then and then you get to take all the credit for it it's quite lovely <laughs> um the theater, how do i know yeah. when it's done i i never feel like it's done yeah. i never 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 feel like it's done but eventually you just sort of say okay this is where i stop mm-hmm. and and you put it up yeah that must be exhilarating too it is it really is um we we opened we premiered smart pretty funny here last october Mm-hmm. I was really hoping that it would get picked up all over the place. So far, it has been picked up once, which mm-hmm. is great, uh, up in Denton, as you mentioned. And uh, hopefully, others will pick it up as well. Yeah, there's certainly still time. So, right? Yeah. One last question I have for you. If there was a show that if you had any sort of budget, you could do at Amphibian, your space was unlimited, what, what would that show be? Oh, mm, yeah. You know what show I'm obsessed with? Hmm. It's, um, it is The Visit. And whenever I tell people that, uh, their faces sort of go numb. It's like, (laughs) really? That's your answer? I don't know if you're familiar with The Visit by, by, uh, 
Durenmont, but mm-hmm. it's a story of a town that is going bankrupt. There's no money. There's no jobs. People are going hungry. Everybody's poor. Their clothes are in tatters. And um, they don't know what to do until they get wind that somebody who used to live there is now very, very wealthy. Mm-hmm. And she is going to be co- coming. Her train is going to be coming through their town in a few days. So they plan this giant banquet and ask her if she wouldn't stay and visit them, you know, her old home and uh, have dinner with them. So they plan this dinner. She shows up. And of course, it's it's very bizarre. She has these two twin sons with with these, it's just very funny and absurd. There's a certain level of absurdism. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, she shows up, she's sort of like a Cruella de Vil style where she's very bossy and very, you know, a self-made woman. And um, so they fawn all over her and, oh my goodness, we're so honored that you're here and you're such a, such an outstanding citizen and they award her the key to the city um, and she's, she finally she listens to them without saying anything finally stands up and says okay you can stop now I know what you want you want my money mm-hmm. so let me just remind you how it is that I left this town when I was a teenager one of you sitting around this table got me pregnant mm. That man was, has moved up in the world, is a respected businessman in your world, and I was chased out of this town in shame. I was beaten, I was called names, and I had to leave town. And so I will give you the money that you're asking for, that I know you're going to ask me for, but you have to kill that man. Whoa. And they go, oh, no, we could never, we could never, we could never. But as the play progresses, you start to see, you know, people are starting to buy things on credit. You can see that they're, they really are planning on killing the guy mm-hmm. um, and that they're going to, because they want the money. And uh, it's just such an interesting play about women's rights, the way, the way she was treated. It's an interesting study on, on greed on loyalty. Um, it just, I just think it's a brilliant play. Mm-hmm. That sounds right up my, my alley. Da- I took sure. my daughter to it too. And she was, she was a teenager and she said, that was the weirdest play I've ever seen. <laughs> I absolutely love that. play. I saw it yeah. at Oregon Shakespeare festival and have been obsessed with it ever since. Yeah. I'm sure she'd love it now. She could see it now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> a little <laughs> bit older. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again for coming on, Kathleen. Uh, this really did mean a lot to me. I really do respect and admire oh, you as a you creative so professional. Much. Of course. Of course. Thank uh, you so much for including me. Yeah. Is there any social media that you'd like to plug? Maybe amphibian social media? What, what's your next show? That kind Absolutely. of stuff. Absolutely. Um, so right now we've got this play, A Lost Leonardo by David Davalos. The mm-hmm. same man who wrote Wittenberg, so you know it's just a brilliant mind. Yeah, Wittenberg was great. Um, it's directed, <laughs> it's directed by Alana Stein, mm-hmm. who has worked. She's from Fort Worth, but she's worked all over New York. And um, and then our dramaturg was Kate Farrington, recently from the Pearl Theater. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, everyone should follow us on at Amphibian Stage. And what is our website? Amphibianstage.com. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And uh, of course, if there are any playwrights listening out there, we do accept submissions in the spring. Mm-hmm. And uh, those guidelines are posted early in the year. And I look forward to reading everyone's work because I do personally. We're one of the few companies that still has an open submission policy and uh, we're really proud of that and and proud of the opportunities that we make possible Mm -hmm. that's definitely a great service and hopefully you see a few extra ones you wouldn't have seen otherwise but uh thanks again for coming on kathleen and i'll be in touch soon great 
Okay. Thank you so much. Of course. Have a good night. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks once again for listening. I had a great time talking with Kathleen. She's always a very lively person, has a lot to say. So interviewing her was a real treat. I have a bit of an announcement to make. A few things have come up in my life and I do need to kind of take care of those and prioritize those things. So I'm going to be putting the show on a temporary hiatus, hopefully no longer than a month. That'll give me some time to build up some extra interviews too, so I can release things throughout December without interruption. I hope you'll stick with me, and in the meantime, if you wouldn't mind just letting your friends or your family know about the show, letting them know that they can subscribe on whatever podcasting service that they use, that would be so helpful to me. Part of keeping podcasts up is motivation, so those types of things mean more to me than you know. That being said, if you know somebody who might be a good fit for the show, maybe they're a designer, or maybe they do rigging for lights, or something else interesting in the theater, You can always have them contact me at TGLPod on Twitter and Facebook, and I'll set up an interview with them. If you like the music on today's show, the intro song is by Ish Boy, and the outro song is by Komiku. I'll put both of them in the show notes so you can check them out. See you next time at the Ghost Light.